are towards today's show, whether it's considered liberal media or, or, uh, or what, but they have some interesting articles. And this article says, five parenting styles that cause entitlement in kids and how to change them. I'm sure that you've never struggled with these if you've had kids, but I'm going to read some of these identifiers, and please don't raise hands because we don't want to know if this is you. But it says that there's five basic ones, um, and the first one says this, the keep-them-happy-at-all-cost parent. It probably sounds a little bit like Rod, but... Uh, but uh, it says, this might be you. So don't raise your hand if this is you. This might be you. You'd rather let your kids dominate your phone or some other kind of tablet during errands or pull strings with teachers and coaches than face a tantrum. You'd rather have them be occupied with something else, whatever they want, um, than to face a tantrum. If that is you, please don't raise your hand. Here is two, the enabler. This might be you if your 16-year-old expects to grab a fully prepared bag lunch on her way out the door every morning, or your 7-year-old somehow always gets you to clean up his Legos. For us, it's an 8-year-old grabbing her fully packed lunch and a 5-year-old that gets us to clean his Legos. That is the enabler. Third, the rescuer. This might be you if your children or your child can't remember his or her homework, permission slips, gym shorts, and lunch unless you remind him every single morning. Any of you experienced that? How about the indulger? This might be you if your 12-year-old demands to see a PG-13 movie with his friend and wins. Or your six-year-old insists on drinking soda with every meal and wins. And then number five of entitlement parents is the over-the-top parent. Uh, this might be you if you go far out of your way to make sure that your kids have the best childhood possible. I remember seeing some of these birthday, these uh, sweet 16 birthday parties on, like they had them on, there was a show, wasn't there? about the Sweet 16 birthday. And there were times where I think they were spending hundreds of thousands of dollars for a 16th birthday. Now, if you're from the Spanish culture, which I am not, but I, I've been invited to these when I was in high school, there was a friend of mine who had a quinceanera. And I swear I went to a wedding reception. It was so decked out. And when I asked her about this, because I, I had no clue what this thing was, I was like, you're 15, come on, you know? What's special about being 15? And she's like, no, this is something we do. And, I, and so I asked her about it, and she said, in, in our community, a lot of times we try to outdo each other. You know, the parents are, you know, well, well they had a llama at theirs. We need a whole, ca we need a camel at ours. And, and, and so... We need a whole circus. That's the over-the-top parent. Now, let me ask you a question. I mean, in, it's, it's kidding, because I, but have any of you struggled with any facet of this? 
want to see hands. I want to see you, if you have struggled with this. If you are a parent and not struggle with this, then you are not human. All right? Because we struggle with this. In my heart, I would love to do everything nice for my kids. When they would like a candy bar at the, at the store, of course I would love to buy it for them. Or, or they want, you know, I, I love seeing, I mean, as, as you've probably noticed in this month and a half, that my son loves superheroes. And that is, right, which is me. I am his superhero. No. But he loves superheroes. And when I see a cool, like, sweatshirt or something that has a hood where you can see through it, I'm like, I would love to buy that for him. But I do not want to be one of these parents. So the bigger issue there is something that is called codependence. If I can... Codependence. You've heard of codependence before, right? Let's see. Wasn't there a picture there? We need each other. Now, you know that there are codependent relationships out there, right? Have you ever known somebody in a codependent relationship? A friend? A family member? And you struggle because you're like, I wish they would just get out of that relationship but they don't see it. Actually, they're, they're pretty much fulfilled by this relationship. If you don't know what codependency is, let me just read a little bit. This is from Psychology Today, um, and it says this. Broadly speaking, dysfunctional re- in, in dysfunctional helping relationships, which is what we, they defined codependency, one person helps and supports and enables the, un- the other's underachievement Irresponsibility, immaturity, addiction, procrastination, poor mental health, or poor physical health. Does that better define it for you? If you look around and you see some of the relationships, you understand what this is talking about. It says dysfunctional helping relationships don't necessarily involve codependence, but they may. Codependent relationships are close relationships where much of the love and intimacy in the relationship is experienced in the context of one person's distress and the other's rescuing and enabling. So one person always needs help and the other person always wants to help. You know that this happens in the church also, right? Um, There was a... uh, Let's see. When there was... When I had just moved into one of my ministries, uh, there was a young female who was just, she had just graduated high school, and she had a lot of family issues. And so I sat with her one day when I had first gotten there. I didn't know anything really about her. I sat with her, and we talked for about an hour. And she's like, can we meet again? I really, I really need to meet again. I said, sure, we can, we can meet again. Well, I started seeing a pattern that she wanted to meet as much as I had free time. And somehow she got my phone number and started blowing up the phone. Well, it came to the point 
where I had to start ignoring phone calls. And I had to talk to her about it. This is not really healthy. And you know that there are some people that, that they need a rescuer. And then there's some people that I know it seems so good and noble, but they need to rescue people. You know these people? And they're both equally dangerous. So I have a, a statement with this codependence is that what seems good is not always right. It seems healthy to help people, doesn't it? Don't you want to help people? Don't you want to be able to give to everybody who comes through this church? Don't you want to give to everybody who's on the street corners with a sign? But you know what we call that kind of person who does give. And it's, so, it's, it's such a hard balance, but we call that an enabler. We enable people to do this. And I struggle with that in my personal life. Like what I want to give, because there's only so much I can give financially. There's only so much time-wise I can give. Actually, pastors are the biggest enablers out there, man. Well, I don't know about totally, but, but there are a lot of enabling pastors out there that have sacrificed families, their own families, because everybody has needs. I need you, I need you, I need you. And, I, and that's scary to me. Because guess what? There's a whole generation of pastors' kids that are living without God because daddy over there cared about all the needs of everybody else. That was enabling. Not empowering, that's enabling. So I want you to remember this statement. What seems good is not always right. Now I'm going to take you to the Lot story. Do you guys know about Lot? If you've read any of the Bible, you know about Lot. You know his, end, his ending, you know where he is, but we're going to go backwards. There's a, there's a, a, if any of you watch Seinfeld, you're growing up, and I never did, I just heard about this. But uh, there's, there's one episode that I heard about where uh, they go backwards, and I thought it was such an ingenious one. They go backwards, and, they, and the funny thing about it is they start off with uh, this guy has this little, little, like, like little sucker, but you know those, those rainbow ones that are like twirled around that you'd get at like a fair or at a big candy store? So, so at, the, at the very end of the show, which is really the beginning of the show, mind blown, um, it's back to regular size. And, and, he, and, it, and you see where it all led up to what happens at the beginning of the show, which is really the end of the show. Are you guys confused? We're going to do the same thing here. So Lot, the last mention of Lot in the book of Genesis is Genesis 19. And Lot is struggling. Actually, the last thing that happens to Lot in Genesis 19 is his daughters get him intoxicated, and they procreate 
with him. And there's two products from that, byproducts. Ammon and Moab, who end up being enemies with Israel. But what led him to this point, to be in a cave with, with his daughters this way? We'll just back up a little bit further. His, da- I mean, his, his wife is turned into a, a pillar of salt. Why? She turns back. Now, some people, there are theories on why, why she turns back. Now, the Hebraic idea the general one, and even, and I found this in Patriarchs and Prophets, is that, did, did you know that it's believed that there were more children than those two daughters that left with them? That there were at least two other daughters that had gotten married. And if you read in the story, when Lot is trying to tell them, hey, let's get out of town, the son-in-laws are like, you're ridiculous. We are so successful, there has never been a city that's been overtaken in a day. We're good. They all made fun of him. You're just an old man that knows nothing. So it's believed that Lot's wife was looking one more time. Are my girls coming? Are the families coming? We don't know if grandkids were in the picture. Actually, there is a theory in Midrash, which is a Jewish writing, and it's, it's such a cool, like, just concept. I'm not saying that this is true. But remember the dialogue that Abram has with, uh, with the angel before they destroy Sodom? He says, if there's 50 righteous, would you spare the city? What do the angels say? Yeah, we'll do it. Well, it's, it's you know, Jesus sort of you know, God dialoguing with him. And he says, well, what if there's 45? All right. Well, how about 40? Yeah. 30? You know, how much can I push my luck, you know? How about there's 20? And what's the number he gets down to? What if there's just 10 righteous in the city? There's some theories that that was the size of Lot's family. He was saying... If just Lot's family is still alive and they're righteous, would you spare the city? We'll do it. But you know the sadness of the story. There wasn't ten righteous. Actually, seemingly, it's probably only one righteous right there. Just Lot. Luckily, his daughters are saved in this experience, but he loses his wife to a pillar of, she becomes a pillar of salt. And, there, and I'll, you know, we can talk sometime about why it's believed she turned into a pillar of salt. But you go back, the reason they're fleeing, and you know this story well, the reason they're fleeing from the city is that these messengers come in and say, we are going to destroy the city. You need to get out. And he's, you know, he's him hoeing around. Well, you know, let me go tell my daughters. And um, should I bring, you know, this scarf? I, these gloves don't really match. I don't know. He's, he's, he's wasting time. And it's believed that that's partially 
why his wife didn't feel the urgency to leave. She's just sort of dragging her feet also. That lots, a little bit of that problem. But the city gets destroyed because of its evil. And Lot's right in the midst of it. And he loses two of his daughters, at least two, in the mix. Previous to that, when he had been living in Sodom, and, uh, Sodom for a while, he had just, if you look in Genesis 14, minding his own business, and there was this war. There was this war, and it was basically paying tribute. That was what it was really about. You paying you, what you do, you know, what, what you owe me. It's sort of, it's like the mafia. Right, Rob? Like the mafia. And if, if you don't pay up, something bad's going to happen. And finally, some of the people were fed up with paying up. Well, they were captured. Lot wasn't part of this, but he was captured. Well, luckily, Abraham gathered some men, a little over 300 men, goes in, saves them. And, uh, but bad deal. You go back, chapter 13, it says this, so, oh, let's, let's start here. Now, Lot, went with, who went with Abraham, also had flocks and herds and tents, and the land could not sustain them, and this is what uh, Cameron read, and the, la- the land could not sustain them while dwelling there together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. So they split up. They couldn't even live together. We're going to get back to that in a minute. Now let me ask you, whose fault was this? I want you to guess. Whose fault is all this turmoil that has happened in Lot's Lot's life? Not happy. Do you understand that? He has to leave from his uncle, and then after that, he's captured. Well, he's brought back. Also, his wife, there is a belief that his wife, he met in Sodom, because he would have probably stayed home with, with the family if he was, you know, but he, he loses his wife. He loses his daughters. How depressing. So whose fault is it? Who? I think I heard something. It's believed that it's really Abraham's fault. And I want to tell you why. If you read this, and I'm just going to read from up here, you read from up there. This is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begot Lot, and Haran died before his father Terah in his native land, in Ur of the Chaldeans. So he dies. His dad died. Haran died, and that was Lot's dad. Now, if you read this right after this. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out from your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. 
Did you catch something there? What does it say? It says, get out from your country, leave your family. That word means all of your relatives. You leave them all. Now, Abram said, but I'm going to do something good. But the command was, leave all your family. Do you know, I, I, didn't, I intentionally didn't include all the story a couple weeks ago of what is believed to have happened with, with Haran and all that, you know, Lot's dad. Because what happens, do you, if you remember, if you were here, and I was saying that it's believed that Abram was thrown into a furnace and was saved. Now, Terah, his dad, since he saved Abram's life, was going to be thrown into the furnace also. But he wasn't. Because Terah was a coward, according to some Jewish scholars. And he said, wait, 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 you're going to throw me in? Um, it was actually Haran's idea that we save Abram when he was a baby. Just letting you know. And it might have been. It doesn't say. And so they say, okay, we'll spare your life. Go get Haran. And they throw him in, and it, what it says in the book of Jasher is that because he was not perfect before the Lord, he died. Now, there's another account, which I don't know if it's, any, if it's ver, uh, verifiable at all, but it says that actually, remember when it said that he was destroying, Abram was destroying all the idols? That he actually set it on fire, and Haran was so tied to the idols he ran in to put out the fire, and he dies. Every account that I've read so far, Haran dies by fire, and it's because of something Abram does to act noble. He destroys gods or something like that. Haran dies. So how do you think Haran, I mean, Abram feels towards Lot? Man, do you think there's guilt? Oh, yeah. There is guilt. I'm sure he's, he feels the only reason not is an orphan is because of the decisions I made myself. So you have no father. You come with me. But what was God's command? Leave all of your relatives. Why do I believe that is true? Because if you read this, this happened after the strife. Remember, there was strife between the shepherds? And it says this, But the men of Sodom were ex exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord, because that's where he goes. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift your eyes now and look to the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. It's yours. Did he do it before Lot left? He could not make the covenant before Lot left. Is it light bulb? Click. There's no way he could have made that covenant because who is eldest son right now? Lot. He is the adopted son. So if 
this covenant, or if this promise is made and he has Isaac, do you see potential strife? Well, I'm sort of the eldest right now, even though he's adopted. And Abram, as you know from the story of Abram, is sort of a wimp. He's a wimp. He will not stand up. When, when he, you know, Sarah, you know, Sarah's like, well, I don't have a baby. Um, and he's like, what am I supposed to do about this? Well, you know, have a baby with Hagar. He didn't really want to, but okay, I'll do it. You know, and then she says, okay, we need to get rid of Hagar. She's really bothering me, and we'll get to the story next week, or the week after, or maybe it's the week after that. And, and he's like, well, what am I supposed to do? He doesn't want to make those decisions. He doesn't want to have those crucial conversations. So he's like, all right. Do you really think he was going to tell Lot? Sorry, I am firm about this. The covenant was made for Isaac. That's what the promise is. No, he didn't want to make those decisions. So not until Lot left was that valid. That's when the promise comes. So again, I say this. What seems good is not always right. Doesn't it seem good that he wanted to father an orphan? Honestly, think about that. He wanted to father an orphan. His relative... But was that the command of the Lord? And the Lord saw down and he said, if you do this, there's going to be a lot of pain. It might not even be your pain. That pain is going to be your nephew. He's going to go through a lot of pain because you did not listen to the command of the Lord. Parents, we know, and it's so hard, you know, going back to that enabling thing, it is so hard not to give your kids what you didn't have. At times, it's so hard to discipline your kids, isn't it? You know, I I wonder if any of you have said this, if you are a parent, I would have never gotten away with what you get away with. You ever said that? My wife says it. I don't say it. No, we both, we both believe that. We both say that. My dad would have never let me get away with what you get away with. If I said that to my parents, boom. I believe it's all CPS's fault, you know, but I would have gotten thrashed. But we are called to discipline. What feels good, what seems good, is not always right. The Bible says if you spare the rod, if you do not discipline, by the way, the root of discipline is what? Disciple. If you do not build that disciple through discipline, you will spoil the child. 
And if you don't believe it, just work with youth for 12 years, and you'll see which ones where the parents did not discipline. I was at, I worked at camp one year when I was still in college, and there was a child, and sad to say, it was a pastor's kid, and their motto is they would never discipline. They wanted to show God's love, and they would never discipline their kid. All the counselors, the male counselors, because it was a boy, did, were just praying, we hope that this kid is not going to be in our cabin. Well, what they did is they stuck him with a new counselor that year because he didn't know any better. Every day, the kid would wipe feces on the walls, never wiped. If you saw his underpants, brown as could be, we do a disservice when we do what seems good, it feels good not to, you know, I want to be a loving parent, I don't want to discipline, but guess what? It is not right. Young singles, Can I say this? I'll say it this way as the euphemism. Physical intimacy is good. I didn't get an amen. Come on, married couples. Physical intimacy is good. It is a God-given gift. I have to be like, people should be dancing over this statement. We have, in our Greek way of thinking, we have really made intimacy a negative thing when in the hebraic idea this is the the one expression where you can unite with somebody that you don't share with anybody else and something happens biochemically where you seal that relationship but there is a right time in a right place. Because God made it that way. By the way, I know I have to be careful. I always have to be careful when I'm speaking. I don't when I'm with my youth, because we can talk straight. Uh, but because there's younger ears here, let me just say this. It is, it is known medically that there is a biochemical, everything we do is biochemical. You, you realize that, right? When you see different colors, everything is a biochemical reaction. Well, when that happens and the climax happens, whether it is via screen or in person, it is believed that there is some kind of uniting that happens. Now, there comes a point in time when you reach three or four of those different experiences that your brain says, I am not supposed to unite in this type of intimacy with this many people. So it actually starts putting walls, saying, this is as far as I will let you get intimately with me. 
And each time after, whether it is in person or via a screen, that starts breaking those walls. And if you know anybody who has struggled with those kinds of addictions or know anybody who's had those multiple partners, you know that happens. That they struggle with intimacy when, it's really, when they really want to give it now. Now I am ready to settle down. But now we have to unravel all that junk. And it's not because physical intimacy isn't good. It's great. But in its right context. What seems good is not always right. This, now I'm going to say something in it, and I hope, if I step on toes, I'm sorry. But I do believe in our culture today, in our Christian culture. I'm not talking about out there. I'm talking about within these walls. We have accepted things like divorce way too often. Divorce kills people's spirits. And I think there's a reason why Jesus said, unless there's some infidelity here, unless you absolutely can't reseal that relationship, there's no other reason. And the only reason we have divorce in the first place is what does Jesus say? Because of the hardness of your hearts. Because what was happening is these Jewish men, because there wasn't a divorce allowed, what they would do is if they got tired, and this still happens in the Middle East, if I got tired of you, all right, let's see you provide for yourself. Boom. So she couldn't get remarried. The only place she could go is back home. And she would die Singled, but still legally married. That's it. And once her parents die, she'd have to fend for herself somehow. Try to find another relative. So because of the hardness of their hearts, God said, I'm going to make a provision. Because men, you should not treat women this way. I will allow where there is a thing called divorce. But remember this. This is not just so you can do it. If I'm tired of my wife, if I'm tired of my husband, well, and and Jesus is clear. He's like, let's go back. It's only because of infidelity. It's not because you just don't get along. Because guess what? If you ask every couple in here, if they're honest, there are times where you don't get along, right? You don't always agree. Right? Do you agree, Gary? Or does she just say, you don't agree? See? Just right there. They don't agree. But since Patricia's the boss, he's going to agree later. <laughs> How about here? Again, I, I'm, I know I need to be careful. But our world is telling us nowadays 
that it is healthy and you need to accept certain lifestyles. And if you don't, you're a bigot. If you don't accept what the world says is acceptable, our society says, and I am not talking about how we treat each other. We should treat each, every person as, a, as God's creation. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just saying whether it is healthy. And there are lifestyles out there that are not healthy, but the world is saying it's just as healthy as what the scriptures say. If you understand what I'm saying. What seems good is not always right. And even here in our church, like I've told you before, I have seen people leave this church, not this one, but our church, because people cared more about the structure what we call reverence, and they don't really understand what reverence means. And I'm not saying that we should be irreverent. But, but, but what I'm saying is they have cared more about this than actual people's lives. They have cared more about property. They have cared more about quietness than actual people's lives. And we wonder why people don't want to bring their crying babies into our structures and our churches get older and older and older and the youth aren't quite in there anymore. We also, what seems good, and what we've used this term holy, what seems good is not always What is right? I'm sure I will have dialogues about this because there will be people that do not quite understand what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that we, you do whatever. There is still order. But people are more important. So what seems good is not always right and not always healthy. If you, well, you can't really see this real well. Any of you know who Aaron Ralston is? Ralston. Ralston. Yeah, do you, know who, do you know who he is? You know who he is. There was actually a movie made about his experience. Does anybody, can you tell me what that movie was? 127 hours. 127 hours. Now, if you, I, I want you to, to fact check because, you know, I'm, I'm obviously going to try to, by memory, paraphrase what happened. Now, Aaron Ralston, in April, I believe, of 2003, decided, I'm going to go hiking, and I believe it was in Utah, in a place like this. But he didn't happen to tell anybody that, where he was going, And he went alone. So he goes. Now, by the way, Aaron was an adventure seeker. I mean, he he moved to Colorado a couple years before, maybe it was just a year before, and said, I am going to climb all the 14ers, you know, the 14,000 and above, and I'm going to do it all in the winter by myself. Not smart. 
But he, he goes here. If you know the story, you know where this is going. And he started climbing some of these areas. And there was at one point where he is near a 800-pound boulder that maneuvers and traps his hand. Can you imagine the panic? Can you feel it? I mean, if you really imagine that you are stuck there and you know the first thing you're going to do is you're going to try to, without breaking something, you're going to try to move around. And he tried every which way to do it. There was no way it was going to get lodged. Actually, how they... I'll tell you later because then, I, you know, spoiler alert. I don't want to do that if you haven't heard the story. So he gets lodged in there. He had two burritos and a pack for water. He said, I don't know how long I'm going to be here, but I better just start sipping. He'd just sip a little water, and he'd take little bites, my size bites of this, these two burritos, well, there's day one. The burrito gets smaller. The water gets less. And day two, day three, he starts, he's out of water. Since he's out of water, he has to drink something else. And eventually he's like, I need to, I'll either die here or I need to get through this. Well, he had a multi-use tool that he, the way he says is, it's the, multi, the kind of multi-use tool, not a, a special one that you'd get with like a, it would be a free gift if you bought a flashlight or something. So this was not a, a high-end tool. And he, and he started doing some superficial cuts and he's like, uh Here's my problem. I got to get through bone. And so he, he, he just can't do it. But as day five is there and he said, I'm going to have, as he became delirious, he, he had this epiphany. I can, if I break ulna and radius at the same place, I can get through it with my tool. And so he leverages himself to, and it says it took him one hour, according to his timetable, after that, with his multi-use tool, to get through and leave his arm there. He had been practicing tourniquets and stuff, and, um, and by that time, people started realizing, hey, Aaron's not around. We better go look. Go look for him. And they started sending out parties. And four hours after he severed his arm, they found him. And according to him, he said, I actually, my fear to sever my arm saved my life because if I would have done it a day or two or three days earlier, nobody would have found me. But they found me at the right time. Now, let me ask you this. This guy now is a motivational speaker. He's well-known. He speaks around about his experience. 
But if he's really honest with himself, do you wish that he had his arm? Do you think he wished he had his arm back? Yeah. He went through this because he was trying to be noble. I can do this. Whether he was thinking, I don't want to burden somebody to come with me all the way out here, or he was thinking, I want to do this on my own. No matter what got him into this position, he had to lose an arm. The same with Lot. Because Abram did not follow the commands of the Lord, Lot lost a lot more than an arm. And what pain we bring because we try to bypass somehow and try to justify in our heads, well, maybe God wants this. When he says in his word, he says, no, that will bring pain. Please do not do this. That's God is always going to that character of God. God is always trying to protect us. And he puts these guidelines in here so that we can avoid pain. Isn't that a great God? That is part of what we call the gospel. It's amazing what God does for his children. A ritual the priestly blessing. Yavarecha Adonai v'yishmarecha, Ya'er Adonai panav alecha v'yichunecha, Yisa Adonai panav alecha v'yasem lecha shalom. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Happy Sabbath, everybody. God bless.